Welcome back to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces shaping investing. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We've talked recently about how corporations have changed their behaviors in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's not just COVID-19. Racial injustice and inequity have also come into increased focus. And individuals and corporations alike are taking notice. How are companies changing in light of conversations on race? Today, we'll hear from two leaders who are spearheading conversation and action around race, bias, and inequity. Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts, Professor of Practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, and Wes Moore, CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, a nonprofit focused on fighting poverty. BlackRock's Linda Delp recently sat down with these leaders at the BlackRock Future Forum, a virtual event for thousands of our clients, covering topics ranging from technology and the future of investing to healthcare and post-COVID governance. First, Dr. Roberts shares her views on how corporations can tackle issues of systemic racism. So last September, you and two professors from Harvard Business School published an important book called Race, Work, and Leadership. Is systemic racism truly commonplace? And I'm very curious to know why you think it persists. So with your first important question about systemic racism, is it truly commonplace? Is it endemic to the ways that our organizations function today? And unfortunately, I have to answer based on the data that yes, systemic racism is still widespread and it's deeply baked into many of the structures and practices in corporate America. You know, it shows up at various levels of the process when we think about entry, when we think about advancement, when we think about engagement, and when we think about leadership impact, all central important questions around talent management, we see the longstanding and current impact of racism on those processes. So at the entry level, we see racial disparities in terms of who gets hired and the ways in which racial bias enters into that process. Just from the point of screening a resume and looking at a person's name to decode whether or not that person might be white or whether they might be a person of color. And numerous field studies have shown that those kind of split second decisions will weed somebody out of the hiring process just that quickly. But let's assume you get into the door. We see that there are racial disparities in terms of the kinds of developmental experiences that people are afforded the types of mentoring and sponsorship that they get along the way. And those translate into whether or not they're tapped for these high potential opportunities that allow them to advance beyond entry levels in organizations. And then the last piece is around the leadership impact question. So let's say you advance and you make it to the level of managing director or similar senior leadership roles within your organizations. We find that even at those levels, people of color and Black people in particular still face the day-to-day stressors of racial microaggressions, of people questioning or doubting their authority, of being mistaken for lower-level or lower-wage workers in the organization, or perhaps an administrative assistant or someone who's on the custodial team rather than someone who's responsible for initiating and executing important decisions. So all throughout the journey of one's career, racism still plays a role It persists because systemic racism is capturing the idea that racism operates as a system. 
And by system, we mean they're reinforcing system of beliefs, decisions, practices that create self-fulfilling prophecies around who has power and advantage and opportunities within our organizations and who has to struggle harder to get access to those opportunities if they get them at all. Clearly, now there's a bright light being shone on corporations and leadership across America. I think, Leander, the first step is to do what we're doing today, which is to invite more open engagement and learning conversations around race. For so long, race has been unspeakable. I have certainly seen a difference in the past months and the floodgate of opportunities that are opening for organizations to start to advance anti-racist work because people have started listening. And when leaders signal that they're listening, then members of the organization and other critical stakeholders will begin to speak more freely about their experiences. And people can learn together how to create or co-create the best path forward. But What corporations are doing now is looking internally. So also having to create cultural audits to say, hmm, let me look at my engagement practices. Let me look at my hiring practices. Let me look at the rate of advancement and the level of credentialing for members of different racial and gender groups within the organization to see, is there a different path that certain individuals have to follow within my organization versus others? So everybody's got to get that internal data. And then from there, invest in the necessary infrastructure to promote sustainable diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. So what do you think are further catalysts that corporations need to act and go beyond the talk to demonstrate their real commitment? What would be the drivers? I think it's important for us to acknowledge that a lot of the urgency of change right now is coming from those external catalysts and drivers of success. It's been a public global outcry around racial injustice, and that is much of the same horror that drove change during the 20th century civil rights movement and the anti-apartheid movements. Now, internally, what happens here in driving the change is to have those courageous voices who can partner with their colleagues in the organizations to help engage this new call to consciousness. But there are others for whom race represents a collective shame or guilt or just a lack of empowerment or frustration about what to do with this big challenge and how to fix it. So therefore, I'm afraid to talk about it and acknowledge it. And then there's a third group who have actively resisted a lot of the DEI initiatives. So for those who say they feel that their organizations haven't done enough, there are others who have been reflected in these that say white men are being overlooked and excluded by DEI initiatives. And so the DEI initiatives then have fallen out of favor, especially when people feel that they are focusing too much on race or racial and ethnic minorities. So leaders, in order to move through change, are going to have to contend in some way with that conflict, the internal conflict within the organization about how much attention and how many resources, to be quite frank, this kind of work should be getting. 
COVID is still having a disproportionate impact in a shocking and brutal way on Black and Brown Mm. communities. And we are still not of common mind or common voice about what it takes to protect the lives and livelihoods of our planet, much less those who are most vulnerable. And so those remain deep-seated concerns for me. I'm encouraged by the fact that many corporate leaders have expressed their unequivocal support. I'm also mindful and observing the fact that there is still a wide continuum where some corporate leaders are all in and other corporate leaders are sort of dip their toe in the water. And now they're realizing it's a little hotter than they expected that it would be. They're starting to pull back a little bit. Right. So, you know, bottom line, am I hopeful? Yes, I'm hopeful. That was BlackRock's Linda Delp with Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts, professor of practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. Next, we'll hear Linda's conversation with Wes Moore, CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, on the role race plays in the fight against poverty and how the Robin Hood Foundation has transformed over the past few months. Wes, you are the CEO of Robin Hood, one of the most important organizations in the effort to address poverty in our nation. You're a combat veteran, a best-selling author, a social entrepreneur. What were some of the challenges and the key influences that enabled you to become the man you are today? I am the grandson of someone who was first one on my mom's side of the family actually born in the United States. But it was the Ku Klux Klan that actually ran my family, my grandfather and my great-grandfather out of the country because my great-grandfather was a minister who was very vocal. And verbal threats eventually turned into physical threats to the point that he decided that he had to pick up his family and leave the country. And most of my family made a pledge never to come back to the United States. But my grandfather did. And my grandfather always said that this was the country that he was born into. He felt that he had just as much ownership as anybody else. And he came back here. My father died in front of me when I was young. And my mother was having a really difficult time with that transition, then decided to move us, myself, my older sister, my younger sister, to go live with my grandparents who lived up in the South Bronx. And they had a house that was barely big enough for them, but they figured out a way to make it big enough for all of us. I think in many ways, the fact that my family has always gone through this idea of being tested, the fact that the neighborhood that, frankly, I grew up in was one that was chronically neglected, and we knew it. We continue to feel this need of being able to feel a self of justification for belonging. And I think that feeling, that push, and frankly, the fact that I had a lot of people to include my family, but eventually leading to this amazing string of people who entered into my life and showed me and believed in me in a way that I wasn't even prepared to believe in myself at a time, that they really helped to guide me and direct me into not just the person that I am, but also into the things that I want to focus on and the impact that I'm looking to make. Would you say there were any differences in the type of racism and bias that you may have observed either at different times or different places? Some of the most predictable life outcomes are completely highlighted by race, right? And that includes life expectancy. It includes academic achievement. It includes income and wealth physical, mental health, maternal mortality. That's just the data. But it's also highlighting how those different mechanisms continue to have generational impact. The fact that I was the first in my family to go on to places that my family didn't even imagine existed. 
going to school in England and all this kind of stuff and doing everything again that was being asked. But here's also the reality is that a black person with a college degree has the same wealth as a white person who's a high school dropout. And that's a true fact right now in this country, that a black woman who has breast cancer has a 42% higher chance of dying than a white woman with breast cancer. It was just about, well, you lived in an impoverished community, and therefore this is what it is. That's one thing. But the thing that the data continues to show us is that even if you transcend from there, that racism still continues to show itself because it is one of these things that has permeated every system that we have within our society, from housing, transportation, education, criminal justice, everything. Can you explain for us the cost of child poverty? Can you break that down just a little bit further? Absolutely. So if we're looking at the cost of child poverty, the numbers actually come from an OECD study. And so we're talking about a study that's looking at the impact and the levels of deep poverty and what deep poverty has actually meant and done to our measures of society. So you consider the fact that three decades ago, the poorest families in America received most of the transfers going to families with private incomes below 200% of the federal poverty threshold. But if you look at kind of where that is right now in recent years, those families received less than one third of all the transfers. We have fundamentally made the challenge of child poverty more and more difficult. And so when you're looking at things like the OECD study, when you're looking at things like the National Academy of Sciences, who are talking about the $800 billion to the $1.1 trillion a year, they're looking at it in lost adult productivity. So increased costs related to crime, increased health expenditures. And as staggering as that number is, it also fails to capture that level of untapped genius and unrealized potential of the nearly 10 million children, 10 million children in this country who are trapped in poverty. How has the work of your organization changed in any way since the murder of George Floyd in particular? 2020 has been a year that none of us could have predicted and all of us wished we did not have to have these twin crises that arrived at our doorstep, right? This twin crisis of the introduction of a virus that has had absolutely catastrophic health and economic implications on society and also a very unneeded reminder of how policing is not equitable in every neighborhood. But the interesting thing that I think it's also has shown that while COVID-19 impacts everybody, it did not impact everybody equally. And while policing reform is necessary in every neighborhood, we watched how George Floyd's name was added to a long litany of people to include names like Michael Brown and Philando Castile and Freddie Gray and Walter Scott and Sean Bell and Eric Gardner and Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor and Laquan McDonald and Tamir Rice and Ahmaud Arbery and Trayvon Martin. And the list goes on. But you watch how these twin crises really expose a singular truth. And that singular truth is the role that race plays in our society. And if you look at even our work, it's absolutely undeniable to understand the role that race plays in the poverty fight that we have going on right now. And so organizationally, we have really pushed in and doubled down on our commitment, not just to keep our North Star of moving families out of poverty measurably and sustainably, but also double down on being able to attack these things that we're seeing, not just at the effects, but also at the cause. Being able to address this issue of racial inequity in a very real and a sustainable way. And we've made a few movements in that space that I'm very, very proud of. One is how we're thinking about it from an organizational perspective about how we really move to attacking it 
internally and externally in every way that we see it, but also in the creation of something called the Power Fund. So the Power Fund is a new initiative to fund and elevate nonprofit leaders of color who share in Robin Hood's mission of increasing economic mobility from poverty. And it allows us to address this issue of poverty through the lens of that interplay between racial injustice and economic injustice. Robin Hood, in addition to putting 10 million of our own capital into this, but also being worked with other partners to be able to target something that we know is not just an issue now, but address it on a long-term basis as well by supporting the leaders of today and also the leaders of tomorrow. Thank you for all you are doing at Robin Hood to help those as fortunate, to help make things better for others. The common themes implore us to learn, reflect, and act decisively and with empathy for the betterment of others, perhaps, but also for the larger society and therefore our own selves and our own organizations. Many thanks to our guests and to all involved in making this important discussion possible. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. 
no securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.